is an Odyssey original. This is KDEX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman, the man freed from prison thanks to a popular podcast now in legal trouble. Again, we'll go in-depth. Coal might be made from dinosaur remnants, but now it might be going the way of the dinosaur. We'll explain. And fancy gems come with a high price, but just because you might have the money to afford it doesn't mean you'll get in. We start with the murder conviction of Adnan Syed being reinstated by an appeals court in Maryland. With us is Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney and former L.A. County prosecutor. Joshua, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So this is a weird, or at least it seems to me anyway, to be a a strange reason for the conviction uh, to be reinstated. And it had something to do, as I understand it, with the fact that the, I think it was the brother of the victim here, uh, the the, the woman that uh, uh, Mr. Syed was accused of, of killing, was not in attendance at a hearing. Is that right? Yes. And I think the lesson learned here is that even though the DA's office was trying to do what they felt was the right thing, you have to make sure that you're doing it the right way. And this comes as a I can't view it as any other way, but a strong rebuke from that court of appeals there in Maryland uh, to say that, listen, you need to give them a new legally compliant and transparent hearing, meaning that the first hearing was not legally compliant and was not transparent. So they're asking him to come back into court. Uh, so that they can have this hearing over again and allow the victim's family to be present and to be heard. So do we expect any surprises uh, this second time around? I think likely no. Um, you know, you're still kind of looking at a, 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 a battle between the executive and judicial branches here. The judicial branch is just essentially saying you didn't do this the right way. The executive still has the power to dismiss this if they feel it was a miscarriage of justice. So I imagine we will see the same results, but we might see a more fleshed out and thorough hearing. Is it likely that he will be returned to prison while this is all developing? I don't think so. I, I would be shocked if anyone tried to, to actually remand him and take him into custody. I What I believe will happen is he'll be notified. His attorneys will be notified for him to return to court on that hearing date. And we'll probably just see a redo of the last hearing, but a little more transparent as far as the victims being heard. So is this the beginning of a trend, a new American trend uh, where we're seeing it? Maybe it goes along with social media as well, but uh, maybe a trend where we see podcasts, et cetera, things of that nature, upending uh, court cases, uh, things that have been decided, people that have been sent to prison. And now uh, everybody gets a relook if you're lucky enough to be the subject of a podcast. It does seem to be that way. And, and I think that's good that we're shedding light on some of these cases. You have public attention it certainly played a role in this case. I don't think there's any way of denying that, that his case would not have had the kind of um, uh, examination that it has by the uh, DA's office if it weren't for all the public attention, especially in regards to that podcast. But of course, that also then speaks volumes uh, about the criminal justice system, or at least in in some cases anyway, if after going through a rather lengthy, and it wasn't lengthy, trial, it took a podcast to reverse it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Listen, I think it's good whenever light is shed on cases and public attention is brought to cases, but you expect that the, the district attorney's office would do the right thing regardless of the public attention. In this case, however, they felt that taking another look, they felt that their office was not uh, had not properly turned over evidence that there were other possible suspects that were not explored thoroughly. So in their view, um, this was a miscarriage of justice to have convicted him the first time around. The problem is, 
is now we still don't have a, a, a person held responsible for the murder of this poor woman. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney and former L.A. County prosecutor. Right now, though, electricity generated from renewable sources surpassed coal-generated electricity in the U.S. last year. This was uh, for the first time ever. How big of a role, though, did California play in all that? Severin Borenstein is with the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and is on the Cal ISO Board of Governors. Severin, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. So uh, how did we fare here in California? Well, on coal, we fare great. California has mostly phased out coal. We have no coal generation in the state. And we try very hard when we buy imports to not have them tied to coal generation. There are a couple, particularly in the LADWP, still does have some contracts to purchase generation from coal plants. But California is one of the cleanest grids in the country. And uh, we have, for the most part, phased out coal. Our real challenge in California is natural gas and winding down our usage of natural gas, uh, which continues to be the dominant player in the state. So uh, with this this big changeover, as far as the nation is concerned, uh, getting more energy from renewable sources, is California the leader in that? Or are we leading the way for the rest of the nation or are are we kind of? Uh, everybody's catching up to us now. Um, California is a leader. I'm, I actually, off the top of my head, don't know if we have the the uh, largest mix of renewables. I suspect we don't because there are areas that have a lot of hydropower, which California has some, but not nearly as much as some of the Northwest, for instance. Um, but California is definitely a leader, and we have been really a pioneer in pushing uh, solar power in the grid and dealing with the issues that raises, such as the end of the day issue when the sun sets. So, you know, you got to keep telling, we have to keep telling ourselves, California is less than 1% of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. The most important thing California can do is set the right examples for the rest of the world, particularly the developing world to follow. And California has been doing that, really uh, charting a path towards much greater integration of intermittent renewables, wind and solar, and particularly solar, where uh, we have an abundance resource and we are really the pioneers in figuring out how to integrate that into the grid. But, you know, Severin, I can almost hear some of our listeners saying, well, this is all well and good. It's great for the environment, great for the earth. But uh, every time there's a storm, my power goes out and my bill keeps going up. So how are we faring on that? Yeah, we're not faring very well on that. But it's important to recognize neither of those have much to do with renewable energy. So the power going out is 99% due to the local distribution systems, the wires that run around our neighborhoods. That's where most of those outages are coming from. And we really haven't done a great job in having our local distribution systems keep up with the increasingly difficult weather. And that's an investment uh, we really have to make. Our Our rates are going up not because of the cost of renewables, although some of it is because of early investments we made, but in large part now because of the cost of dealing directly with climate change, uh, particularly with wildfires. Uh, That's how we are paying for a lot of the wildfire damage and precautions. 
when there is a wildfire started by utility equipment, if the utility wasn't negligent, they still have to cover the cost, but they're allowed to pass it through to ratepayers. And so that's a big part of why our rates have been going up. And then, of course, we're hardening the grid and trying to do more vegetation management to reduce those fires in the future. And that's driving up our rates. All right. So, so those are both problems, but they're not really problems uh, driven by renewables. OK, so we are a leader in renewable energy, but we're also adding a lot to uh, more demand to the power grid here because California, uh, more than most states, have really adopted uh, EVs and electric vehicles. Those got to be recharged and those have to be recharged off the grid. So uh, are we really keeping up with demand when it comes to renewables? We are keeping up with demand so far. Um, the issue is as we start to really electrify not just vehicles, but also houses, uh, vehicles in some ways are easier because it's not that hard to shift when we charge those electric vehicles to times when there's abundant energy, like the middle of the day. The harder piece is going to be when we start trying to heat our houses with a lot more electricity. Because shifting heating time for your house is much more challenging. And so we really do have to get out ahead of this demand, not just in building more renewables, but importantly, in figuring out how to build more storage. And so that when we need the power, when the renewables aren't producing a lot, we can supply it and we can do it not with zero natural gas. We're not we're a ways away from completely phasing it out but with a lot less reliance on natural gas. And I think that's the big challenge for the next decade in California. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Severin Bornstein with the uh, UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and also on the uh, Cal ISO Board of Governors. Are we in a second Cold War, but this time it's with China? Gordon Chang is a, Chinese, a China expert and author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Rob and Charles. So uh, the first two questions, uh, are we in a new Cold War with China? And if so, how is it different from the Cold War we had with the Soviet Union? Uh, certainly we are. And we know that because what the Chinese and the Russians are saying. When Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, left uh, Moscow, he said to um, Putin, look, we're seeing changes that are coming that have not occurred in 100 years. And he said to Putin, you and I are driving it. We're seeing that they are forming effectively an alliance, not a formal one. Um, and around them, we're um, watching their proxies like Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Algeria form together and sometimes act in unison. So, yes, this is extremely dangerous. And it's different because in the first Cold War, we didn't enrich the Soviet Union. But we're doing that now with our trade investment, technical cooperation. So we're funding our own de demise. Well, I was going to say, uh, and unlike the uh, Cold War Part One with the Soviet Union, uh, we get so much because it, it goes both ways. We are enriching China, but we're enriching them because so much of what American consumers consume is made in China. So what happens if the Chinese decide, you know what, we're not going to make anything for you guys anymore? Um, yes, they could decide that, but then when are they, where are they going to sell it? 
So it's well, hard Russia. For them I mean, they could, yes, but they could sell it to. I mean, some of these alliances that you're just talking about, they could sell it to Russia. They could sell it to Mid Eastern countries. They can sell it to sell it to Asian countries, to uh, Arab countries. They can sell it to a lot of places other than us. Oh, of course, and and really, we have a vulnerability, and that is uh, primarily pharmaceuticals. But apart from pharmaceuticals and a few other items, um, they need us a lot more than we need them. And they have a regime which has declared a people's war on us, which the regime is backing the fentanyl gangs, which is stealing hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. intellectual property a year. And so this is a one-sided relationship. That's not to say we don't get any benefits out of it, but on balance, this relationship favors the Chinese so much more than it favors us. And we need to change that immediately. Okay, so that's my next question. If they need us more than we need them, and and if we recognize that we are indeed in a Cold War and that it is dangerous, should we begin using that leverage, and how would we do that? Well, absolutely. And the leverage that uh, the primary leverage we have is our money. Um, Investment dollars going into China. China needs that right now um, almost desperately. They also need our trade um, because their trade has been uh, one of the mainstays of their economy. What we don't have is political will. And so, therefore, we are not using these uh, forms of leverage. But uh, we could very much lose our country because we have a China that is maliciously attacking us. And we don't understand the danger, which compounds the problem. And yet your book, as we mentioned, is called The Coming Collapse of China. How does that happen? It happens because uh, China, I think, um, has a people who are really unhappy right now. It has an economy that is unsustainable and has been having problems recently. And they don't really have any way of rescuing it within the confines of their ideology and of their system. Uh, they've got they're beset by simultaneous crises, so worsening food shortages, deteriorating environment, collapsing property prices, you name it, they're being hit by it. And because of that, I think they're more dangerous than they otherwise would be, because this is not a stable regime. It's not one that feels secure, and therefore it's one that can lash out. And because it can lash out, it can take us by surprise. We Americans think we're entitled to be oblivious about what our enemies say about us. But every once in a while, our enemies reach out and strike us, and they strike us hard. So if China lashes out and we apply more pressure to them, that makes them more desperate. Uh, would their first move be what we think is the obvious? They would they would uh, engage over Taiwan, and then that would force us into some kind of military confrontation. That could very well be it. Or they could strike Japan, which is a U.S. treaty ally, or the Philippines, or they could lash out at us directly. And yes, um, right now, everything that we do is exceedingly dangerous. But to say that something is exceedingly dangerous is no longer a meaningful objection, because after three decades of truly misguided policies towards Beijing, um, there's nothing that we can do is safe. All right. Uh, Thank you so much, Uh, Gordon Chang, uh, China expert and author of The Coming Collapse of China, also a book called The Great U.S.-China Tech War. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A federal judge has ruled that former Vice President Mike Pence must testify to the grand jury looking into the January 6th case. But how much will he say, if anything at all? This all comes after 
Another witness testified yesterday in the hush money case against former President Trump in New York. Now, there are reports the grand jury won't hear the case again this week. Rachel Fazay is a defense attorney and legal analyst. Rachel, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. So a judge says, "Okay, you've got to testify. Uh, But knowing the history of all of these cases, is he not likely to because of executive privilege claims that his former boss, Donald Trump, uh, makes? Isn't he likely to appeal? And this will go on endlessly until perhaps the Supreme Court. Oh, I'm sure that's the goal, is to have this go on endlessly. And he is likely to appeal, unless, of course, he makes a political decision not to and simply testify as to what he has been instructed to testify, which would not be covered by executive privilege. And that is anything relating to an illegal act, which is likely what the ruling reads, even though it's under seal. Now, long delays would go, it seems to me, to help uh, Donald Trump, and he is a Republican candidate for president. Uh, Mike Pence is uh, looking like he's a Republican candidate for president. So why would Mr. Pence, if he would like to defeat Donald Trump for that Republican nomination, want to help uh, Donald Trump delay and delay and delay until after an election? I agree with you. He he may not want to, but... But again, the Republican Party seems to stand behind Trump. And if Pence makes a decision to go against what Trump would want him to do, I think he may lose some of his base. Again, these are political decisions that I think he will be making and not necessarily those that would be based on a legal basis, which is how he's supposed to be making his decision as to whether to appeal or not. Okay, so now let's let's go from the Pence uh, case involving the January 6th insurrection to the other case. It's amazing how many different cases there are against grand jury bingo. Trump. Yeah. Uh, But let's go. It's hard. You need a scorecard. But let's go to the uh, Manhattan district attorney and the grand jury there. So about two weeks ago, mainly fueled by. Trump himself, who claimed uh, erroneously that he was going to be arrested last Tuesday and, of course, wasn't. But there was all of this speculation that they were on the verge, the grand jury in New York, of indicting him. And this is the hush money uh, case. Yet here we are now going in. Next week will be the third week. Uh, No indication that anyone is in any hurry. What, if anything, do you read into all this? I read into this negotiations going on between the Manhattan district attorney and Trump's team. Trump was never going to be arrested on the street. He was never not going to know at what point he was going to be arrested. He would simply be required to self-surrender and everything, including his indictment and anything in front of the judge, would be absolutely planned out. So what I'm reading into this is negotiations, maybe even a plea agreement, but at least some sort of deal on the way that everything will transpire from here. I'm not reading into it that it's not going to happen, but I do think Trump is playing an active role in how it's going to happen. If this is a negotiation for a plea agreement, what does Trump have to offer? What is he? Does he give them uh I falsified business records, but uh, don't charge me on campaign finance violations. 
It would look to me something like that. It would look like a misdemeanor because if he falsified the documents but didn't have a second crime under the charges that they're looking at, that is a misdemeanor charge. It's where you get that second crime that it becomes a felony. So my guess is where that is playing out. In which case, if he were to concede that, as a misdemeanor charge, there would be probably a fine, no prison time, obviously, and he would not be, at least from this case, a convicted felon. That's the idea. That that That, that is what could be happening at this moment, is just working through all of those intricacies. And so was his claiming that he was going to be arrested, was this part of that negotiation tactic? I think that claim was to rile up his base. He was never, again, there was not going to be a perp walk. He was not going to be arrested in his home at some hour he didn't know was going to happen. All the time when someone like Donald Trump and many other people, much less high profile, those are self-surrenders. Those are absolutely pre-negotiated. There is a time and place that that arrest happens. And it is generally, you know, he comes at some hour where people aren't outside and he sets the time with the prosecutors. So he was never going to just be arrested on the street. That is purely Donald Trump riling his base to see how much he can get behind him to stop this type of crime from being charged. So, Rachel, when when we teach school kids that the justice system is blind, <laughs> is is blind to class <laughs> distinctions and and is blind to whether or not somebody is rich and powerful and famous, uh, and that everyone is equal under the law, that's all a lie. That is um, not an an accurate depiction of how the white collar criminal world works. Okay, well, well said. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Rachel. Very, di- very diplomatic, by the way. Rachel Vizé, a defense attorney and a legal analyst. Thanks for joining us. Very artfully, you can see yeah, why she's very an well attorney. Done. Yeah, very, very well done <laughs> answering that question. Uh, okay, when we come back, the gyms that don't want you. Uh, when you think of exclusivity, you probably think of. Oh, private resort or maybe a a fancy restaurant uh, or a nightclub that hardly lets anyone in, which would be a kind of lonely place. But yeah. And you probably don't think of health clubs and gyms, but there is now a growing number here in L.A. that are so choosy as to the fact that even if you have a lot of money, they might not let you in. Uh, Sebastian Chope is president of RSG Group North America, which owns Heimat. Uh, that's a health club in the Hollywood area. And uh, we're also joined by John Atwood, a business consultant who focuses on health clubs. Thank you so much both for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having us. So yeah, the uh, uh, first question for Sebastian is, uh, as the owner of a health club that is, uh, I, I assume that you're part of this discussion because your health club is kind of exclusive. So if that's the case, uh, what are you looking for in people who want to join it? Well, we look at uh, different different aspects of their lives. Um, the club has more than just uh, fitness facilities. It also has moments of indulgence in our restaurant or a cocktail uh, by the pool. It also has a co-working space. So uh, when uh, potential members apply with us, we will you know, look at their social media, which can also be their professional websites. It could be their LinkedIn profiles. And we would determine based on the information we gather if 
those would be the kind of members that would actually enjoy the club and embrace the club and, and everything it stands for, and not just uh, single components out of the uh, entire offering that we have. Sebastian, I was reading uh, the other day that, that some of the clubs, maybe yours, uh, their ideal member is somebody kind of cool, that's a quote actually, uh, in their 30s. Is that the same for you? It's not. Um, you know, there's a lot of clubs out there that will uh, inquire about the industries and, and the positions that, uh, you know, applicants have. Uh, we don't really care about that. I think, uh, you know, uh, lawyers, for example, are probably one of the uh, most uh, creative people that we have, uh, even though not they're not considered creative class. So we don't we don't look at the industry or any any positions that they may have. All right, uh, John Atwood, uh, business consultant. I want to ask you this question. You know, health clubs and gyms, uh, basically w- what they're selling us is they're going to help us to look better. Uh, we're going to look better. We're going to look more fit. We're going to be in better shape. Uh, you know, women or men will like us more because we're going to be more attractive. But if a club is getting so exclusive that they only want already attractive, fit, happy, cool people to join, uh, is that a good business opportunity? And wouldn't it be better for a health club to take a schlub like me or Charles and turn us into Greek gods? Speak for yourself. Thank you. <laughs> well, how schlubby are you? Um, Charles, how schlubby am I? No comment. Okay. <laughs> that should tell you everything you need to know. So anyway, l- listen, I think the answer to the question is that uh, Sebastian's group owns a whole range of clubs they own gold's gyms they own this model and uh, the reality is that in the last 15 years this industry has gone all over the place in terms of you know providing different models for different people and to be blunt it's no different from the incredible change in the radio industry you know back 20 30 years ago i mean it it fragmented in all sorts of ways so you know, we've got discount clubs. We've got Planet Fitness, and Planet Fitness is great for some people. It's ten dollars a month, and we've got the Bay Clubs in San Francisco, which are these very, very upscale family clubs. And you know, if if the reality is that some people want to be involved in a very exclusive club that's that's profiling the members, and they profile the members in various different ways. Some some of the private clubs profile members based on their commitment to fitness. Period. Um, How, let me ask you about that, John, since you brought up the profiling thing. Uh, as I mentioned to Sebastian, some of the clubs have been quoted as saying that their ideal person is somebody in their 30s. How did they get away with that? Isn't that age discrimination? You know, the answer is I don't know. I mean, the reality is that private clubs have been private clubs for years, whether they're for-profit private clubs or not-for-profit private clubs. I mean, the Houstonian, which is uh, an iconic club in Houston, which uh, the Bush family has belonged to over generations, is a for-profit private club application only. So, um, you know, th- th- there's just a lot of different ways to do this thing. And some people want to be involved in a very exclusive situation, and it helps them to be fit. So, I mean, I, I come from a, a background where, um, although I'm a business business consultant and, and a lot of the work that we do is feasibility studies and analysis, you know, the reality is that I come from a background where I just want the most possible people in America to, uh, to be healthy and we're going in the wrong direction right now. So right. whatever it takes. Okay. Sebastian on, on your exclusive clubs, what, what are you charging? Uh, we charge $350 a month. 
uh, with a $300 initiation fee. A month? A month, yeah. So would you uh, describe your health club uh, being exclusive, uh, say, for example, a country club that's exclusive, we want certain type of members. So this is basically extending the whole country club idea or or exclusive nightclub idea to to a health club, right? And that's what you're aiming at. It does. But as I said in the beginning, you know, there's more components to it. And what we see with our members is that they're consolidating several memberships into one as in, you know, they, they belong to a social club, they may belong to a co-working space, and they belong to a, a premium gym, for example. And they uh, consolidate those memberships and just have one membership at a Heimat and spend, I don't know, eight hours a day at our club, you know, from working uh, in our clubhouse and taking a few calls by the pool. And then they lift some weights and meet some friends for uh, dinner and have a glass of wine by the fire pit at the end of the night. So give us a quick, a quick sort of rundown, very quick, uh, on how you decide who gets in. Once again, we're trying to create a uh, an atmosphere where uh, people want to be a part of something that is way beyond fitness. And um, you know, if you if you're just looking for a club uh, to lift some weights, you put in your earbuds and you go in, you get a workout in, you see a workout as a chore. Um, the club is not for you. Uh, the club's for you if you uh, like to uh, mingle with with like-minded people. If you'd like to attend the programming. Uh, that we have our TED Talks, female empowerment workshops, um, I don't know, astrology workshops, things like that. Uh, and if you can, you can, um, you can think about spending an entire day at at one place instead of jumping from place to place. Then that's the club for you. All right, thank you so much, guys. Uh, Sebastian Shope, uh, president of a group uh, which owns Hymond uh, Health Club in the Hollywood area, and also uh, John Atwood, business consultant who focuses on health clubs. You know, since it got raised, the door was opened uh, to my uh, physical fitness and my health. Uh, I just want to explain to the audience that uh, I have six-pack abs, and unfortunately that six-pack is underneath a really comfortable pillow. <laughs> So that's it for KNX in yes, depth. We're, we're getting into fiction now. <laughs> yes. okay. uh, that's been KNX in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.